Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app Hey everybody, I have some exciting news. I joined the very popular podcast network Feral Audio and uh, we're working on putting together cross-promotional stuff so I will get some more listeners for the Here We Are podcast and getting sponsors so that I can put resources into doing um, spending more time on this podcast. Uh, less uh, the the kind of goal is to do a little less, uh, be able to be more selective about the road work um, that I do. If I'm getting income off this podcast, I won't have to take the uh, the harder <laughs> stand up gigs out there that sometimes I need to pay the bills but aren't moving my career forward in any way and kind of uh, sometimes are a bit of a time suck and disheartening so i'm i've been uh been a road guy for 10 years now and i just want to be a bit more selective about my work and more importantly um increase the quality and um and have a regular frequency with this show uh, which is uh a whole lot of work and we're now going into the third year so um we have more listeners than ever and i just uh, just want to make it better and get some help and devote more time to finding awesome guests and doing more research and all of that good stuff. This is coming right up at the uh, at the end of November, going to Jamaica for the Myco Meditations Psilocybin Assisted Retreat. I think it's going to be amazing. I believe there's still a few spots left. You can go to mycomeditations, M-Y-C-O-Meditations.com. You can also check out the Myco Meditations episode if you have yet to hear about that. I'm pretty pumped about it. And uh, so, yeah, you can come kick it with me in Jamaica um, for 10 days, I want to say. Um, should be an awesome time and uh what else do we have the my patreon account patreon.com slash shane moss on there you can hear me uh <laughs> going on a number of rants about all sorts of things and just finally started recording some uh some dmt reports um i've been i've been trying to sort out exactly how to approach um, starting from the beginning and remembering all those years ago and kind of writing out and making sure that I'm remembering all of the details to the best of my knowledge and uh, remembering to include all of the insights that that I uh, that I've come up with over the years and so 
uh, please check out the Patreon account for that. And check out Laughable, the Laughable app where you can hear all of uh, the best comedy podcasts. And you can subscribe to your favorite people. You can subscribe to me, Shane Moss. And you can hear anytime I'm a guest on other podcasts. And you'll also get notified when I'm... Uh, performing in your area on uh, on select shows as they start uh, doing some ticketing. So, all exciting stuff. Uh, we have a great podcast for you today. Enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm here in Sydney, Australia at the University of New South Wales talking with evolutionary biologist and author of the book Sex, Genes, and Rock and Roll, Rob Brooks is joining me. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Shane. I'm I'm so excited to be on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I was uh, I I've been uh, I've been, <laughs> I've been in Australia for um, about a week now, and uh, and you're the first guest I've had with an Australian accent. So oh, that's really, funny because yeah. I'm I'm from South Africa. I grew up in South Africa. Oh, really? So yeah, I have this nondescript somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean accent. That uh, so yeah, it's a oh. real compliment to be to to sound Australian that I sound Australian. Because well, maybe I just don't have a good ear for the different. No, no, I think I get the there. I get the microaggression How- when people pick it up. You know, where are you from? <laughs> How long have you been here? 20 years oh okay yeah yeah i i don't know i feel like you have a little bit of that i love the australian accent thank you so. i'm flattered <laughs> so uh let's uh, talk a little bit about your work in your book uh, sex genes and and rock and roll can can you give the listeners a little bit of a rundown well i wanted to know if i could write a book or not and i thought we evolutionary biologists spend so much time explaining the natural world including the human experience um and it's an unusual perspective to have, really. And, and, and you know, there, there's a fairly common idea of what evolution is and what it isn't, as, as if it's all about sort of hardwired imperatives to go out and survive and reproduce and fight, etc., which is not at all the way that evolutionary biologists view behavior. Um, and so I thought that perspective that we have, that I teach my students, is something that everybody could use. And then I, I read Freakonomics, you know, on a flight to Los Angeles, and when you economists are doing exactly what we do in evolution, just from a slightly different set of tools and slightly different perspectives. So I wanted to learn a bit of economics and teach people a bit about what the world looks like from my point of view, from an evolutionary biologist's point of view. So it's a tour of a few things like obesity and population growth and rock music and why rock stars all die really young, that kind of thing. Yeah, so... Okay, so so what is the difference between the common misconception and uh, and the, the way that evolutionary biologists do see the world? Can you explain that a little bit more? Oh, absolutely. Um, so y- your listeners will probably be quite familiar with the evolutionary point of view because you yeah. have lots of social psychologists, evolutionary psychologists yeah. on the show, but. For us, it's you know reproduction is important. Replication of genes is actually the most important thing. We are the products of genes that have made it through millions and millions of replication events. And so genes that are good at replicating themselves by keeping individuals alive long enough to reproduce, by helping them to succeed at reproduction, those are the genes that we all have now. So that's what's shaped us the way that we are. Those genes, however, they are influenced very strongly by the context, by the environment that a person finds themselves in. So the cool thing about modern evolutionary biology is that it's really a very context-dependent science. It's about the way in which environment and evolved genotype interact with each other. Right. We're still stuck in this 20th century you know, nature versus nurture business where the social scientists all stack up on one side of the wall and the hardcore evolutionary biologists on the other side, you know, talking about genes or, or social context. And then there's a bunch of social constructionists who, who sort of throw their hands up in the air and go, well, it's all kind of arbitrary because it's all socially constructed and there's never a really precise you know, right. explication of what that means. 
So, you know, people like me tend to say, well, you know, you can't tell whether the potion gets its effect from the cauldron or the ingredients or the direction in which you stirred it or whatever. Right. But that's what human nature is. It's a com- it's a, a combination of those things that are um, – you can trace the effects of the components, but they are inseparable in terms of the final product. Right. So even, even if there's uh, some – uh, if, even if there's this all this social construction, there's still it's still interacting within the genes. So if you have if you have a gene, say making you taller, that doesn't uh, that doesn't inherently mean that you're also going to be like a good leader or something like that. But it, but if if uh, if there happens to be something in the environment where people that are taller happen to do better in job interviews for whatever reason, then then having that gene to be taller might predispose you for getting those uh, CEO positions later on in life. And, and, uh, and it really, so it's, it's kind of hard to say like that, that was the, it's not like a gene for making someone a better CEO or something like that. Um, But uh, yeah, it's, it's very, it's kind of tricky to wrap your head around what, what is causing um, a particular behavior. Well, the causal pathways are so complicated, and you know, complicated things like leadership um, are not they're they're never one particular process. They're a, a blend of processes, and that blend changes as well. So, to say something like leadership is a social construct means you know it's complicated. Right. But what's really interesting, and what you know, people who want to understand the world have a duty to do, is to go and say how is it complicated and how does it arise and why does it arise this way and what are the other ways in which it might arise? You know, and that really matters for the things that we study in our lab which have to do with sex because the other really important insight that I want people to know about is that, you know, we we tend to have this nature documentary slash Victorian view of sex that it's for the good of the species and it's about passing on, you know, perpetuating the species is, I think, the euphemism. Yeah. But it is a euphemism. So if you look at nature documentaries, sex is filmed from far away, you know, with a fuzzy filter over it and maybe a sunset in the background, a bit like a Durex commercial. <laughs> and the fact that actually a lot of sex is about how, you know, is about exploiting your mate yeah. um, and about you know, there's this highly cooperative thing you do to combine half of your genes with half the genes of another individual. That's one of nature's most cooperative things. But that cooperation opens up the possibility of exploitation and of coercion and of all the nasty stuff that we tend to think is some kind of aberration, but it's in our lives. All of the nasty ideological fights that we have, they're all part of our lives. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that sex is riddled with conflict. Right. I mean, I try to explain this to my girlfriend all the time that she's manipulating me and using <laughs> me and she just she doesn't want to hear it. But yeah, well, funnily <laughs> enough, you may be manipulating her just by saying she's uh, manipulating you. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> so, um how did first off, how did you get into this field in the first place? Uh, what uh, what drew you into it? I studied the evolution of my choice and the decision was one of those silly things, um, well, not silly, but you know, seemingly trivial things. I wanted to study animal behavior for a PhD, and I had an option to go from Johannesburg, where I lived, to Cape Town to do this PhD on some birds. Um, and I'm not great in the field. I realize that's not where my strengths lie. But I had a girlfriend who lived in Durban, which was um, closer to Johannesburg, like 600 kilometers from Johannesburg rather than a thousand kilometers away, and uh, I, I traveled down there, and I was chatting to someone that she knew, and they said, "Well, these these fish that live in the stream, just behind my house." And I went down there, and they were guppies, the world's most popular aquarium fish, but they'd gone feral there, and they turned out to be a really good species for investigating questions of how mate choice evolves and what it means and why choose. You know, why do female guppies choose male guppies? So I got into that, and I spent about twenty years studying small animals because you can you know do large measure large numbers of them and get you know understand the statistical properties of the traits and how they're inherited but i've always been interested in the evolutionary worldview and how that shapes what it means to be alive and by the the complete lack of a sophisticated biology in our understanding of complicated social problems so in the last 10 years or so spurred a lot of it by writing that book 
I've become much more interested in where does ideological variation come from? Why is sex so complicated? Um, why do you think it's, I mean, it's also easier to, uh, to tell people information about, about animal research, it seems, than, than to share views about human mating systems is so much more controversial. Yeah. Why, why do you, why do you think people, uh, uh, people get kind of so worked up about that. But I mean, anyone can kind of watch the animal planet and see a nature documentary and people, people don't get up in arms of that, that, uh, that a male elephant is breeding with a female in this predictable way or something like that. But, but, uh, with humans, people get, uh, a, a little bit, uh, upset by it. Seems. Well, I think we get upset by it because we're right in the middle of that mix. All of us are negotiating that and the complexities of it every single day. It's like if you watch the news, if you watch all the hideous things that are happening around the world, you know, you can get really worn out by it. And some people just can't watch the news because they don't have the emotional energy to, to engage all the time. And I think that's probably true. You know, sex is so very complicated in humans that we, we have to negotiate it, we have to find our way through that, but actually it's much easier f for us to do that by looking at animals and going, ha, huh, animals have sex, isn't that a bit funny? Or look at the wacky things they do. But right. at the back of people's mind, they're always thinking about humans. Right. So, you know, there's this really unfortunate business, I think, well, it's, maybe it's not unfortunate, maybe it's just human nature, um, but there's this, this way people have of looking at any kind of animal and then layering on top of it what they would like to believe. So a great example is the Dunnock, this little brown bird um, that was studied in the history of British birds. This guy Francis Orpen Morris in the mid-1850s writes about how it works very hard and the male and the female work very hard together and they, you can't even tell the male and the female apart because they're so drab, they don't invest anything in being flashy. You know, he's clearly, you know, being judgy-judged to Mr. Peacock over on the other side of the of the hedge. Right. But, um, you know, and he's rhapsodizing about how modest they are and how much his own parishioners could learn from this example. <laughs> and then in the 1980s, ornithologists put leg rings on the dunnock and they see that, you know, sometimes it's a mummy and a daddy who love each other very much doing the hard work, but sometimes it's two mummies and one daddy or two daddies and one mummy and it's just this mess of polygyny and polyandry and sometimes monogamy breaks out you know despite things and and that opens up a whole worm of you know conflicts that um are all over the place and, and so suddenly we realize that the dunnocks can teach us something about human mating behavior it's just not the thing that the man of the cloth wanted us to learn it's something else right you see the same thing with you know the bonobos and the chimps. Are we like chimps? Are we warlike? Are we male dominated? And Republicans in the U.S. would would you know have actually gone you know this is the natural state of affairs. And right. then there's you know the polyamorists will have you believe that we're like bonobos who have sex you know with all sorts of different individuals all the time. Right. And you know we we're neither. Thank goodness we're not bonobos because sex in bonobos lasts for eight seconds. So <laughs> you know you don't necessarily want to be a Wait, bonobo. That's bad. Yeah, well, uh, okay. <laughs> you want to last at least twenty-five, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, so, what about the, what about some of the different mating systems in in humans um, that uh, that you've studied? Can you talk a little bit just about the variation? Because I think, uh, I mean, we've 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 covered some of this stuff on the podcast before, but it's still kind of endlessly fascinating from coming from, uh, I mean, here in Australia or in the U.S., where most people kind of think of monogamy as the standard what about other cultures where yeah, that's not the case I mean, we love to think that monogamy is the standard but we, if it's the standard we're really really bad at upholding <laughs> yeah. that standard i think the best explanation i've had for the human mating system is dan savage the columnist who says we're monogamish you know we, we can be really good at monogamy we're able to and that's the, the big difference from the chimps and the bonobos since we departed from chimps and bonobos sort of five to seven million years ago our ancestors have slowly evolved a capacity to focus on one mate at a time and to for, for men to invest really heavily in their kids and to invest really heavily in their partners. So we've evolved a knack for monogamy. 
But that's not our only strategy. That's not the only game in town. We're good at it, but we're good at it for really strategic reasons. And that comes on the background of a very non-monogamous evolutionary past. So in a way, you know, we shouldn't be too harsh on ourselves. We can be harsh on our partners for breaking the deal that we've had with them, if that's the deal we've negotiated with them. But... You know, we are able to do something like monogamy, something that we can pretend pretend is monogamy, and um, we can do it for extended periods of time, which is a, a surprisingly, you know, beautiful and tight adaptation. But we have a lot at stake there. You know, if you decide to to um, forego the cost or forego the opportunities of uh, mating with others, forsake all others and spend, you know, at least intend to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you're, that's a big cost that you're incurring. So right. you would hope that the benefit's huge. So if you, if you make a deal implicitly or explicitly and somebody breaks that, then that's a, a huge cost to you. And so there's a lot of wishful thinking about monogamy. And we're a monogamous species and everything else is evil or aberrant or something like that. But people are really capable of all sorts of different types of arrangements. Right. Mating systems differ between societies, but even within societies. So about 80% of the societies that have ever been studied have some form of legal polygyny, which means a man can have multiple wives. In terms of marriage customs, that's you know the way that they put it. Only two or three societies have a legal marriage custom that allows polyandry, which is a, a wife taking multiple husbands. And when they do that, they're usually marrying multiple brothers because there's not enough land for each brother to have a wife of his own. So that's, uh, you know, and then there are some societies that only allow monogamous marriage. Doesn't mean that people are strictly monogamous in those societies. But there are are a number of different circumstances that shape what kind of outcome you get and what the prevalence of monogamy is, etc., etc. Most of those are economic circumstances. And so while the evolutionary biologists have been, you know, studying things in their own little dimension, economists have been studying almost the same things in their completely different dimension with their completely different methods. But actually now those things are starting to cross over. Um, how, how does... Uh... How does that affect, how do different mating systems affect the culture as a whole in terms of, uh, I've seen you write a little bit about um, monogamy and democracy. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, so in the the high point for polygyny, for some men marrying multiple women, would have been in the very early city-states. So the earliest laws that we've got laid down um, in Urnamu, which is in uh, modern-day Iraq, um, and societies like that, there's a real obsession with uh, women's fidelity. And basically, men are able to marry as many wives as they can, but women have to be faithful to their husbands. So they're treated like possessions. And um, so those societies, all of a sudden, you have this explosion of concentrated wealth, which wasn't possible in hunter-gatherers. So it became possible for a woman to be the hundredth wife of a king and be better off herself than being a wife of an ordinary, even an average man. So all of a sudden, it can be very strategic for women to, to marry into, you know, or to, to even join the harem of a, a sultan or a king or an emperor or something right. like that. Um, on top of that, that sultan or king or emperor has a whole load of power that he can assert over those, you know, young girls' fathers to, to give them. The, the daughters to them and for the possession thing to, to carry on. So what you have, though, when you have one guy at the top who has 100 brides, is there are 99 men somewhere in that society who don't get to have that stake in society that comes with having your own partner, potentially starting your own family. Where do those men go? They're either very, very angry or they are dead because of the wars that get fought. Because So societies that have allow polygyny and that have lots of polygyny are much more likely to go to war. They're much more likely to fight internally because there's lots of young men trying to get up off that sort of zero mates floor and right. try and get that first mate. And then amongst those who have their first mate, they want to get the second one, etc. So the incentive structures are much steeper. It's like income right. inequality, but it's a reproductive inequality and it creates the same kind of poison in a society as income inequality. 
So it's it's just exceptionally that much more competitive and yeah and, and cutthroat, literally cutthroat. Yeah, absolutely. And so that creates huge domestic unrest, and it's a security issue. So there's a, a wonderful um, political scientist, Valerie Hudson, whom I met earlier this year, and she's basically said, I've studied security studies all my life and terrorism, etc. And you would think there was only one gender in society. There's no sense at all that women exist. And yet a lot of what spurs, you know, extremism, radicalization, um, just domestic unrest is having a large surplus of young men who have no prospect of ever making it ever sort of getting married and buying that stake in society. And they strive desperately to avoid that. They take crazy risks. And as a consequence, you know, and sometimes often that's exacerbated by bride price. So there's this tax that prevents young men from uh, from, from, from marrying because they'll never raise the money to do so. And as a consequence of that, that's hugely unstable society. And so the leaders of those early city-states it didn't take them terribly long, maybe just a few centuries, for them slowly to figure out that uh, polygyny was a bad thing. So first thing, they would ban their underlings from having multiple wives, and the last step would be to ban themselves from having multiple wives. They still usually would have lots of girlfriends and you know, secret consorts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but uh, they, they realized they had to, to break down that inequality within right. the mating market. So this... Uh, uh one one of the interesting things in our modern world is areas where uh, in India and China where where um, uh, fe- aborting females um, has has caused this um, uh, this this difference in population in uh, in in uh, gender ratio and so it is the prediction that so it, it, what is what is the uh, what is the current difference in gender ratio in in China as a whole? Do you know? China as a whole, I couldn't tell you, but in the most extreme parts, it's in the sort of 125 odd um, boys to 100 girls. So normally it's 106 boys to 100 girls because boys have a higher mortality before they get to sort of maturity. So the sex ratio is actually it's a trait that that is that evolves that is stabilized by. If one sex gets too common, then the competition gets too high, and then the rare sex enjoys a benefit. So it's a kind of evolution we call stabilizing selection that keeps it you know, close to 50-50. And so now the deviation from that that's being caused by female infanticide, female-specific abortion, as, as well as just the neglect of young girls who end up you know, more likely to die as a consequence of the doctor not being called quickly enough, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are creating massive, massive, intense competition among young men. Um, and in in northwest northwest India, there are some states where the sex ratio of you know young people coming onto the marriage market is you know nearly one and a half men for every woman. Wow! So this is causing lots of uh, issues with crime and, and yes, yeah for for each for each one percent. The um, the sex ratio goes towards a more male biased sex ratio in China. Rates of violent and property crime go up by three percent. So it's it's huge, you know. And you think there might be twenty percent increase in the sex ratio. So you're looking at about a sixty percent increase in violent and property crime, as well as you know young men hanging out in gangs, um, antisocial behavior, use of drugs, use of gambling, because gambling, of course, is that taking a risk that you might actually hit the big payday and, and be able to marry um, in order to avoid becoming a bear branch. In China, there's a word for young men who can't you know, buy that stake in society, and they're called bear branches. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> that is depressing. It is depressing, and that's what you know. Valerie Hudson thinks that the, that a lot of extremism is going to come out of that. You just need yeah. a charismatic leader, and all of a sudden you have uh, that kind of extremism arising. In Nigeria, it's it's different. It's not the sex ratio at birth, but it's the bride price that keeps young men out of out of the mating market. And as a consequence of being frozen out of the mating market by this tax of how many cattle you're going to need or how many dollars you're going to need to pay a girl's family – and the family can't afford not to get that money because the brothers of that family are going to need the money themselves. If, um, as a consequence of, the, of those males being frozen out of the mating market, you have complete sympathy for Boko Haram, for instance, you know, who are 
what do they do? They go and abduct girls. They leave a little bit of money on the ground, so they it's like they've paid for it. But you know that kind of extremism is fueled by pure mating market dynamics. Hmm. Um. Yeah, that's. Uh, so so. Uh, it, China may not be the threat to the future that we think. If if it's all if it's going to <laughs> collapse in on itself with uh, uh with male violence eventually. It could collapse in on itself with male violence or it could, you know, historically when there have been these huge surpluses of young men in ancient China, in Europe, what you've seen is that those countries go to war because they've got right, lots right. of expendable young men who you don't want on your neighborhood. You want them somewhere else causing chaos. A lot of colonialism. Right. You know, the there's great studies of the Portuguese sending their second and third born sons who couldn't inherit the land off to, you know, make their fortune or die in the colonies. Hmm. Um, <laughs> that's so interesting. What about uh, what are your thoughts on overpopulation? You talk about that a bit in the book, right? Yeah. Well, overpopulation's you know, it's a it's a controversial issue because some economists are, are very optimistic about our ability to innovate, and they say, well, we will figure a way. You know, just the same as with climate change. There's more minds around, so yeah. there's more people thinking. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, et cetera, et cetera. But those economists who usually spend their time, you know, I don't know, watching TV or reading The Economist or something, and they don't go out into the natural world or to farms and see the, the absolute strain that the Earth's production systems are under. Ecologists, right. however, the, my colleagues in this department, will go out into a nature reserve and just see how much pressure the natural world is under and how much you know, nature and wildlife and open spaces are disappearing. And they'll go, no, the, the Earth's already overpopulated. We've got too many people here. So there's that tension. And then there's an old, old tension about, I don't really want other people outbreeding me because that's a big threat. You know, the people in the next village or the people in the next island or the people in the next continent, if they breed faster than we do, and you see that kind of subtext coming through in discussions about refugees, which is an old kind of baseline racism that people have. So there's a little bit of that in every discussion about population. Nonetheless, how do we how do we slow down population growth? Well, one of the important things is that people don't necessarily want to have lots and lots of babies. They have lots and lots of babies because kids don't all survive. So throughout most of our evolutionary past, it's been normal to have seven, eight, nine kids, some places in the world, 10, where it's very productive, but there's very high infant mortality. Women don't want as many kids as their husbands because if you think of that, that deal, that, that conflict, the mummy and daddy might love each other very much, but if mummy dies in childbirth, then right. daddy can still get another wife. Right. But from her point of view, if she dies in childhood, that's it for her. In fact, that may even be worse than it because she may be replaced by another woman who, like you know Cinderella's mother, etc., doesn't take care of the existing children quite as well. Right. So there's a very bit real conflict, of, largely due to those risks of dying in childbirth, but also the physiological costs of bearing children, etc., where women may or may not consciously, but un underlying, if you you know look at their behavior, if you give women power over the fertility decision, they have fewer kids than when men have all the power over the fertility decision. So that's why, you know, if you educate girls, if you just invest in them, if the state invests in them, you automatically get a reduction in how many babies they have in, you know, they, they start having kids later in life. Those kids are better looked after. It's better for the kids because they're more likely to survive. And you get this virtuous cycle, which causes a drop in fertility. So it's not hard to create a drop in fertility. You just have to invest in women, particularly in the developing world. Wow, that is, I mean, I don't see how anyone can argue with it. I mean, some people are still going to, but that's that's uh, that's one of, it. yet one one more wonderful reason um, to promote feminism. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And a kind of global feminism that recognizes just how little influence some women have over their own lives you know so so when every time that the presidency changes in the united states they have this little charade of the global uh, global gag order where um you know american charities that provide um, birth control advice and uh, that provide advice about abortion or even abortion services in the developing world 
are either you know allowed to do that if there's a Democratic president in the White House or not allowed to do that if there's a Republican president in the White House. And Donald Trump got a lot of heat earlier this year because he signed the reinstatement of this global gag order um, with you know only men surrounding him. I mean, he right. could have found a lot of conservative women who would have been pretty happy with that decision too. But nonetheless, it's a male-centric, it's taking a very male-centric kind of culture wars position. And that it's not just, you know, some vague commitment to family planning and abortion. It's that people in the developing world, their way out of poverty, their way out of a kind of globalized economic slavery is empowerment of women and giving women options to control their own reproductive destiny and so it's not you know it's not like gee i'd really like to be to have access to long-term long-acting contraception women are not finding out about these things that these things even exist or that there is an option because of what's happening in terms of these policy decisions that are taken by governments in the western world what about um what about people like myself that have zero interest in children whatsoever how how can that evolve how is that <laughs> yeah i think you know it's a good question so should we all be you know really hardwired to have um to want to have children you know historically in for most of our species um past and in, still in some parts of the world today it's a surprise when a child comes along because what you have an interest in, what most people have an interest in, there are people who don't have an interest in it, but we have an interest in sex. If you have an interest in sex, you know, up until at least 200 years ago, an interest in sex was enough. You sooner or later, you right. ended up having kids and then dealing with that. Right, right. So, you know, right. the primary motivation is the interest in sex. Right. And a lot more people young adults in particular, are interested in having sex sure. and are necessarily interested in having kids. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, so outside of, outside of uh, um, kind of embolden, emboldening female power, uh, what, what other things have been I, – I mean, the China's like one – one child policy that hasn't seemed to work much are do you think that there's other policies that that have that will be put in place in the future to i mean i i do think that eventually people are going to recognize overpopulation as being a problem food's going to get far too expensive and we're i think going to run out of oil and clean water i think that's kind of inevitable um what do you what do you think people will actually do to uh, to start trying to deal with this problem? Well, I think I'm more optimistic about people controlling their own fertility than a lot of other people are. I think that as you lift living standards in the world, if you lift living standards in most of the developing world, the population thing will take control to take charge of itself. Mm. I think that people will will end up getting to sort of Western fertility rates, which are, you know, a slight decli decline. And we can afford to decline in population size as long as we find ways of supporting people, which is going to change a lot in the next hundred years. So, so the those who want, you know, you still see pronatalists in in Western countries going, we need to breed more, we need incentives for young couples to have more babies, et cetera, et cetera. And part of that is an economic thing, that we need a a big labor force to support the old people who are going to be on the pension and who are going to have big medical expenses, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an economic, demographic kind of question. Now, that's probably, we are going to find that the world's population declines in size, and we are going to have to cope with that the way that Japan has to cope with that already, having going through that demographic process. And the US and Australia will have to do over the next 20 years or so. The big challenge to the world's um, natural resources and environments is going to be as people are lifted out of poverty and as they start to go get to the levels of consumption that we have in the West um, you know, and in, in various other societies. How are we going to cope with that? How, right. you know, If every Chinese person used the same resources as every American uses, we would be in so much strife already. Right. Um, and China's going that way. People want the same things that Americans and Brits and Australians have. They want the same kind of lifestyle. 
And as that sweeps through and as the middle class grows, that that's going to be a very, very serious challenge for natural resources. And so we have to find ways to to provide clean energy and to use you know less space for land for for, for agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. The environmental challenges won't go away. Uh I'm not feeling good about it, to be honest. Sorry, I'm, just I'm step into very... my office and I'll make you depressed. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this is before coming here. I've just always kind of, I've, I've, uh, I've felt pretty pessimistic about the population issue. Yeah. Um. What, what are your thoughts on the, I mean, you just kind of, we talked about how people don't necessarily think about having children, but they, everyone wants to have sex. So in areas where there's uh, not not just in developing worlds, but in areas with um, with lower rates of education or poor education, um, I mean, what what are your thoughts on the idea of idiocracy and uh, of of people with a lower education just being less thoughtful and and kind of not thinking about the long term and and breeding more? Well, I think that's so true. I think I think that that's a very, very normal thing for people to fear. But we do have to ask ourselves, you know, am I the first person to think this? And you go back to the 1850s when Darwin published The Origin of Species, and there was the same worries in London at the time. I mean, London was this, you know, exploding metropolis, industrial revolution that reshaped Britain, et cetera, et cetera. There were large numbers of poor people, and there was this real discussion. Do we help them? Do we provide some kind of support? Or do we just you know, merely leave them to starve to death in one of the royal parks? And there were proponents and, and opponents of those measures. You know, It was a very fierce, long-running series of debates in the British Parliament. Um, and a lot of people was, you know, Malthus, in fact, almost a century before Darwin said, you know, the, we're going to outbreed our resources and basically we shouldn't support the poor because they'll just turn it into more babies. Um, and so there's and there's an underlying kind of classism, racism that goes on there. Darwin himself, I think, was a bit horrified, but other people used Darwin's work to go, yes, look, it's the struggle for existence. We should just let people starve. Um, right. Herbert Spencer was a big, you know, um, sort of social thinker and a conservative who pushed that line and he's the person who gave us survival of the fittest you know um which which sounds all very vigorous and british but actually it means not survival of some other people that i don't necessarily want to persist um so that kind of uncomfortable discussion has been had of course the ancient romans were having the same kind of discussion uh you know if we let the plebs have political power then What's going to happen? They're going to overrun us, and Rome will no longer be this, you know, glorious, shining seven hills kind of thing. Um, and so that discussion—that's not a new feeling, you know. Uh, even though we are discovering it anew for ourselves, and my goodness, if you look at some of the world's democracies and you go, and you and you vote, you know, um, it, it's a real concern. Right. I think all we can do is to try and, as you do with your podcast, enlighten the world and wage a war, a guerrilla war on stupid as much as you possibly can <laughs> and hope that people will discover their self-interest is actually in science and a view of the future that's a bit more um, creative. Yeah, I don't know. Some, sometimes, it, um, I mean, I started this podcast very helpful, and I have a lot of uh, listeners, and it's been uh, it's been fun, and it's given me some basis for optimism. But sometimes, then I then I turn on like reality television or something like that, and I I just I just want to give up. I think that that's a symptom. Reality TV is a symptom of where we're going to like the biggest challenge that we're going to face, which is the future of work. You know, I think AI is now taking a lot of those menial jobs away. Uh, it's not just w when will it happen. It's, you know, how fast is it going to happen because yeah. it's happening. Right. Um, and manufacturing jobs similarly have, you know, dried up in lots of parts of the world. Places like the U.S. can't afford to be buying goods that are manufactured in the U.S. And, you know, that's an economic reality. So how how do we keep this huge population of people entertained? And 30 years ago, there was this think tank. Mikhail Gorbachev was part of it. I can't remember what its name was. And they said, the biggest challenge will be to keep people entertained. We're going to plug people into entertainment. And actually, that's what it looks like now. Yeah. So 
yeah, people are entertained by the most you know trivial, banal stuff. Um, <laughs> Daytime is, television yeah. is just. Can we possibly uh, take that and use it? Like you know, those those computer programs that use your computer's processing power when you're not at work to search for right. extra, extraterrestrial intelligence. Right? Can we find a way to use? people's leftover processing power to serve for kind of terrestrial intelligence or something. Is there something cool that's we can a, do to entertain people? That's an interesting thought. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Uh, um, I I do think uh, podcasts have given me a little bit of hope because it, it, I'm, I'm not just saying this because I have a podcast, so I'm, of course, biased. But uh, but I'm I'm someone that... that uh, started my career doing a lot of morning radio kind of stuff that's that's the sort of stuff that you had to do uh and go on and plug shows and that's how you had to market shows and now um a lot of times uh, in a given club week we like the, the clubs don't even bother uh with the time or the money of doing that because now now everything's podcasting and podcasting is um has taken over as this it's a more genuine conversation it's usually a little more thoughtful conversation and uh and so i it it does feel like a little bit more sophisticated it seems like uh the jump from like the morning zoo with like horn noises and <laughs> wacky wacky uh prank phone calls and whatnot into uh having more genuine conversation that gives me a little bit of hope and it does seem like some tv is getting a lot better and a lot more thoughtful um but uh yeah i don't know but i've just been uh <laughs> I, i've been uh, u.s politics right now i it, maybe i'm just being overly pessimistic <laughs> pessimistic about things but uh or maybe i just need to stay off twitter or stop watching the news for a while but i have just been feeling uh like uh my optimism's been beat down over the last nine months or so just watching u.s politics and I, but maybe this this comes and goes in waves and uh who knows i i don't know to me it's not uh so much a democrat or republican thing i'm just like i'm still getting over the fact that we uh have a reality star president and and I uh I just like like well I don't know humanity I don't I don't know how much it's, there is for it's really troubling to me yeah it's hard to deal with it's just like I've been having a hard time feeling motivated and feeling oh. like but uh but yeah I don't know I I, I think at the same time people have um people have a lot more resources to things like ted talks and it seems like uh i i saw you did you did some like nerd night kind of things where people yeah. were like going out and enjoying some some science conversations so so maybe that thing i think we need more of that stuff now more than ever but uh but yeah i, I don't know it's, it's tough to say how how things are going to go it seems like they they could go they could go down i i don't know I, I I don't like having like an apocalyptic view no. of, of of things at all. I think that can be really delusional, but uh, ah, I I don't know. I've been frustrated uh, lately. What what uh, uh what what's your sense <laughs> your sense of things when when you think about humanity as a whole and the the future of the world? Do you do you go back and forth? Or are you are you worried? <laughs> oh, I absolutely go back and forth. And I think any thinking person has to, you know. you know, A year ago, we were all going, no, it couldn't possibly happen. Yeah, getting the Republican nomination, that's one thing. You just yeah. got to beat out a bunch of whack jobs, you know. But, right. But no, nah, there's no way, you know. And, <laughs> and then for that, you, you can't live in denial. That kind of stuff is happening. All right. He really could you know, choose to blitz North Korea yeah. and, and end up starting a world war and, right. and think he's done a good thing at the end of that, you know. Right. 
So I think that, that those things are real causes for enormous pessimism. Well, especially it's the only it's it's true power that he does have. He's not having he's not having any luck passing much of anything. So I'm sure he's getting yeah. frustrated and he's staring at this button, this bit of control that he does have. And he's also a child that thinks like fire trucks and like bombs and stuff are really neat things too. So it's uh yeah, it's, well, I mean, scary. That's that's so true, and I think it's. You know, protecting uh, the institutions that are meant to protect us from, you know, halfwits <laughs> don't seem to be doing their job. So, yeah, there were a bunch of Machiavellians who pretended to be working through the process and pushing, you know, their own very selfish agendas. Um, and you certainly the Bush administration seemed to be full of them. But now those guys look like, you know, really, really tame by comparison because yeah. they're not barking mad. Um, right. <laughs> and so, and I think yeah, is that a product of of where we're living now? Because you're right, you you can get great stuff on podcasts, you can get great stuff on YouTube if you know where to look for it. If you want to teach yourself, if you want to learn, there's no better time in history. Yeah, the I mean that's the the online classes out there that are. Yeah. I mean, it's so some of them are so much fun too, and it's yeah. how does a kid who's sitting in you know, in a, in an, a little bubble of complete mediocrity, but has the the talent and the motivation. How do they discover the good stuff? Right. How do you get those kids into universities or or onto the right podcasts and onto the 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 kinds of things that value evidence and you know occasionally lining up with something like the truth. Um, rather than you know fussing about chemtrails and birthing and all of that kind of nonsense, and you know I don't know the answer to that one, and that does seem, you know, I, it seems to me like Facebook and Google, if they're going to be big, the big monsters that they inevitably are going to be, just because they're big, right? Why don't they just tweak it a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> why don't they just break it? Why has Twitter not cut Donald Trump off yet? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's gonna his tweeting's going to get us all killed. I'm I'm afraid, and I hate being like this. Is I think. The, uh, Fear is what got Donald Trump elected in the first place, yeah. I think. And so I don't want to and now I then I feel like a hypocrite when I'm when I'm the one that's sounding apocalyptic and whatnot and, and like everything's good because I think that's kind of the line of thinking that perhaps got us in this mess. But ah, I I don't uh yeah, I don't know. It's uh, uh the the leader of the US is a is a mentally ill child mm-hmm. and <laughs> what are uh what are the state of things in in australia i know i know absolutely nothing about australia or its political system should i move here what are, <laughs> what are... <laughs> well unfortunately we're still part of the world right um you know australia had a period has had a period over the last decade in which it's been through one two three four five prime ministers um so twice the the previous group the labor uh party um held held the government for about six years and in that time they shifted from the guy who got them into government to a prime minister who seemed to be you know pretty good but she ended up with a hung parliament so very difficult to negotiate anything and eventually back to the guy who got them into government only to lose at the next election to a leader of the opposition who was very good at, you know, he'd obviously handed two leaders out of office. Um, and he himself was a little bit sort of Trumpian. He's, mm. he's um, a Catholic theocrat, a very, very smart one, but um, yeah, very strong views, shall we say, and perhaps not in line with what a lot of people um, in that I know think. Uh, and, and he was replaced midterm as well because you know as soon as the poll numbers go down you can the 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 parliamentary party can vote for a new leader just like you could a new house leader for instance um in in the states you don't have to wait i gather you don't have to wait for the end of that congressional term you could just replace the house leader if that's the way the internal politics went right so here the leader of the largest party is the prime minister and so they've deposed they've had three prime ministers deposed in less than a decade 
which is a kind of political instability that you know people here are certainly cringing at and going, wow, you know, the rest of the world must be laughing at us because we elect somebody and then the the party decides to to depose them and. I just don't think anybody can get him unpopular stuff through. The first guy lost his job because he he put up a um a tax on carbon, which is a very reasonable policy and one he had campaigned on. Um and that tax on carbon be- proved unpopular because the mining companies, oh, and there was a a, mi- a new tax for mining companies. Australian economy is very mining centric. Um and the mining companies and the big polluters kind of got out and you know got their bullhorn out and got into the media and the conservative media went to town and all of a sudden public opinion turned against the carbon tax and the mining tax, both of which would have been really good for the economy. And, um, you know, suddenly the poll numbers go down and they depose the prime minister. And so that basically means you can't do anything hard, um, which means that, you know, the institutions are going to stagnate. We had a national a rollout of a new broadband network na- nationwide because we're a very big country, so a lot of that stuff has to be done by the government. Rollout of this thing, it you know, and then the implementation was so bad because of politics. So party politics is causing us, I wouldn't say the same gridlock that you have, but it's not far off. It's the same, it's the same disease, maybe not all the same symptoms. Hmm. It's interesting. I, uh, I like it here. I, I, I like Sydney. I I just got back from Melbourne. I don't uh, I don't know. Melbourne's just like a city. I'm like just like oh, there's a lot of stores. I don't, I don't yeah. Know. Whereas like Sydney has the beaches and all that uh, all that nice stuff. Melbourne I, thinks it's Europe. So, but what y- yeah. you just missed is the football season. So Melbourne is the epicenter of this Australian rules football, okay. and. So a lot of culture revolves around that. Right. And if you're into that or, you know, various other, you know, sophisticated kind of restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, Melbourne thinks it's the bee's knees, whereas Sydney's, you know, more beaches and sunny and a little yeah. bit more glam. Right, um, right. But, you know, very different places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I'm a Sydney guy. Excellent. <laughs> Welcome to Sydney. Um, all right. So... Uh, Last little thing. One thing I've been doing lately. This is new. I think you're you're maybe the fourth person that I've had do this. I'm a lot of pressure. I didn't prepare you for this. I, I've I've opted to not prepare my guests for this just to see what happens. Um, I used to on the program. I used to have a guest each week plug a charity of their choice. You're still welcome to do that. But the thing was, I would put a lot of pressure on people. People would be like, oh, I'm not a terrible person. Then people would feel bad. And then I was afraid I was making my listeners feel bad. And I couldn't tell if it was making any difference whatsoever. And so I thought of something instead that I think might make a little bit more, a little bit better of a immediate difference in individual listeners' lives. Uh, and, and that is, I've been starting to ask guests, I want you to give uh, the listeners an extra credit assignment. It can be anything from... Uh, a book that you wish that everyone read or <laughs> yoga <laughs> or uh, Michael, um, who I had on yesterday, well, no, uh, last week to the listeners, um, told everyone to get off social media for a week was, uh, was, was his extra credit assignment to every, do you have, uh, do you have one thing that, uh, that you can recommend everyone try out? Uh, and you can we can pause it and you can take a moment I think as well. Go for either go for a swim in the ocean if you're lucky enough to live near the ocean. All right. Or go for a walk or a run in nature for at least thirty minutes. Okay. So get out there into the natural world and spend thirty minutes in the next week in the natural world exercising. Doesn't have to be super high intensity. Just get out there and do it, but do it out in in amongst the living things. Yeah, I uh, I I need that advice often because I I travel a lot and I end up uh, I used to when I first started traveling so much ten years ago every new city I'd be like oh I'll get out and about and I'll see things and I'll take tours and this is great I get to see the the world and then uh, after a while you're like ah whatever I feel like just sitting in and getting some work done and uh, it turns out that just sitting in a hotel room. 
<laughs> locked in doors all of the time is not the best thing for your mental health. No, well especially being. when you're suffering existential pessimism. <laughs> you know what? Um, right at the moment in Sydney, we have something called Sculptures by the Sea that's on between Bronte Beach and Bondi Beach on our eastern coast. There's this beautiful walk. It actually goes for about 20 kilometers from my home down in the south all the way up to Bondi Beach. And there are artists exhibiting their sculptures, some of which are epic in size, um, between Bronte and Bondi Beach. I've and been it's to really that worth before. going. Yeah, oh, my, good. I should check that out. Yeah, that just started last week. So. Oh, wonderful. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Shane. And please, listeners, check out Sex, Jeans, and Rock and Roll. And as always, um, thank you so much for listening and being such a wonderful audience. And I'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, we're going to be talking about aggression, aggressively digging into the topic of aggression, what's causing it, what's going in in the noggin, what uh, what hormones are being released, what are the evolutionary underpinnings, what do you do when you're all worked up, you're fired up, and you're about to start road raging or flip out at your coworker or boss, or you got troubles at home, and and, uh, and you want to be a little more cool-headed. And so we talk about that, what, what some of the causes are, what can, be, uh, what can be done, how can we view aggression differently, how can we even have more empathy for others when they're aggressive. Real interesting conversation with Tom Denson. I haven't plugged reviewing this podcast in so long i don't know why it's a it's one of the things so i, sh- I shared with you some of my uh <laughs> issues lately and uh, i'm bipolar and i had a huge huge manic episode if you go on if you go on patreon uh i'll, I'll be sharing more of that experience in the future i'm kind of flushing everything out of my head and I've been capturing, mostly I've been capturing, I was capturing my mania, and then swung back the other day, and man, uh, not the other day, uh, weeks ago, I've been going through just a ridiculously awful depression, brutal, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad that, uh, that I, I get to have a platform to talk about this stuff because I think that, uh, man, someone that, uh, I mean, maybe I'd care more about other issues if they, if they affected me, but depression has just been something that has made my life miserable, 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 miserable for years. And, uh, but I found ways of managing it that I'm hoping to share with people. And it's a big part of why I, do this podcast and try to learn as much as I can about how the brain works. And, uh, and so, yeah, not to guilt trip you, but honestly, one of the things that cheers me up is going onto iTunes and reading the reviews of the podcast make me so happy. Not only that, but, um, because of the algorithms that iTunes uses, the higher ratings, the more ratings that I have, the more it's going to be suggested to others. That means more uh, as the podcast becomes more popular hopefully i could get back into taking another whack at doing live shows again i really want to uh, they were a little too hit or miss when i was trying it earlier this year i reached my goal for the year i did i did more than i even um set out to do and but it was still were not quite there yet as a podcast as frustrating as that is for me that um you know every everything in this entertainment business and life in general you always kind of want things to be going better and you have big hopes for this and that in your life and and life can often be disappointing and not be progressing along as quickly as you'd want it to and uh and you know i've been kind of reflecting on a lot of that lately it's had me down a little bit but uh that's just uh, in a business like mine, there's just so many ups and downs. And so, you know, this is a 
is a temporary thing, and the podcast is getting more listeners all of the time. The podcast is is one of the things that makes me really happy in my life, and uh, and it's been getting more listeners all the time. And I I think that um, this this uh, new partnership with Feral Audio is going to be um, big for the podcast. I I would like to. Like I said, I would love to devote more time and energy uh, to this podcast. I'm just spread real thin with um, all of the projects that I'm working on, as we all are in life. We're all we're all spread a little thin, often. Um, and so, so anyway, uh, if you want to help me out, I'd very much appreciate it if you went on iTunes, left a n- nice review for me. Uh, I I read them all; they cheer me up and it helps the show as well so thank you very much and those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorite let's say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing (laughs) boris karloff what would it what would that be like (laughs) it might go something like this Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 